now we're recording. We just did all this a second ago. What's up, creeps? <laughs> hey, I swallowed the bits of pizza in my mouth now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God for that. <laughs> all right, it's the second week of January. Mm. We're mm. we're predicting that the world is a better place already. Yeah. And only good things are gonna happen. And that's just the light. Lots of buttery goodness. Mm, all the buttery goodness. Mm. <laughs> We're going to get done for plagiarism. <laughs> okay, yeah. Fuck it. No beating around the bush this week. Yeah. Going to get straight into my story. Go for it. You already know this story. Are you sure at least? Okay. Well, part of it. Mm. Early one morning in the 1930s, a young girl is walking down what is now St. Anne Street in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. New Orleans. She's covered in blood from the wounds on her wrists. Police find her and she tells them that these two brothers had abducted her and cut her wrists so that they could drink her blood. And once they had their fill, they would redress the wounds and leave again. They would leave every morning before the sun came up and return every day after dark to reopen the wounds and feed again. I remember this, yeah. When she brought the police back to the apartment, they found four other victims, all bound and cut, with one already dead. The apartment belonged to the brothers John and Wayne Carter, who, according to different sources, were either well-to-do local businessmen or hardy dock workers, but fairly well-known members of the community either way. Pillars of the community. Pillars. Absolute pillars on the Rather than try and hunt them down, the police left a team of their biggest officers in the apartment to wait for them. Their biggest officers. Their biggest officers. <laughs> that night, when the brothers returned, the police sprang into action. But apparently, the two fairly small men put up such a fight that it took eight police officers to subdue them. With some reports saying that the men actually jumped from their second story balcony down onto the street with ease Mm. before finally being captured. Wow. The Carter brothers were executed for their crimes, but over the next year, reports of people seeing them throughout the town kept coming back to the point where their coffins were actually exhumed to prove that they had in fact been executed. But when the coffins were opened, they were both empty. Wow. That's cool. Throughout the years, there have been multiple sightings of John and Wayne, I'm assuming together, Mm. and it is said that they return to their apartment still to this day, which is a totally badass looking, typical fucking New Orleans building, uh, every year around Mardi Gras. Supposedly, even the current owners have had run-ins with strange figures and noises on their second floor balcony. Now, of the survivors, oh, sorry, I meant to actually ask you. So, they had all been in the apartment for varying lengths of time. Mm -hmm. The little girl had only been fed on, I can't remember the exact number. Mm -hmm. It was something like six times, right? Mm -hmm. They had fed on her. But in order to make her a vampire, they would have needed to have fed on her seven times. Mm -hmm. That was it, right? Mm -hmm. So, one survivor, an adult lady, sent herself to an asylum because she knew that she had been fed on so many times yeah and that she would need to feed her desire for blood Mm -hmm. if she was left out in the regular world yeah and 
a man who went on to become a prolific serial killer who I can find absolutely nothing about. But the legend goes that he escaped from New Orleans, some say to Chicago, but who knows, and his diary was found in the Bourbon Street house where he lived and it's said to have, ha- to have all the intricate details of his insane, blood-filled dreams. Supposedly, he killed 33 people and drained their blood. Whoa. Now, I have been in touch with somebody who lives in New Orleans mm-hmm. and somebody who is actually a tour guide in New Orleans. And I can't verify any of that, oh. which is why I started researching the story. But this is where our story takes a turn. Okay, I'm intrigued. So the vampire community is a very real community, like still to this day, specifically in New Orleans. And I'm just going to start this off by saying I don't want to upset or offend anybody in the vampire community. Mm -hmm. If we get anything wrong, I'm only learning from mainstream media, so I'm sure it's fucking butchered. Yeah, and if you're of the vampire community, please reach out. Yeah, let us know. If Um, If you know a vampire, reach out. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us what we're getting wrong. Mm -hmm. Anyway, this is the story of Rod Farrell. Wow, what a name. Yeah. Born. That sounds like um, like a a punk rock person from London. Rod Farrell. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, his full name is a lot less punk rock. Born Roderick Justin Farrell on March 28th, (laughs) 1980 to a 17-year-old woman, Sandra Starr Gibson. Well, your mom was 17 when she had you, right? She was, yeah. Nice. Um, In Murray, Kentucky. Sandra got married. It's Sandra, by the way, not Sandra. I'm not saying it funny. Okay. It's Sandra with a no. Sandra got married to Rod's father just after he was born, but the marriage was said to have only lasted about three weeks. It's also said that his father joined the military at this time. So I'm not sure which. Did they get divorced because he was leaving for the military? I don't know. Either way. He only saw him again when he was seven and then again when he was nine. There was no relationship there, really. There's so many interviews and documentaries out there about this particular case. There was a lot of conflicting information, first-hand information as well. But it's a lot of, like, he said, she said bullshit. Okay. So if you hear this story in another place or if I get something wrong... I'm I'm not denying that it's wrong, but I probably just heard it from, you know, a different source. Anyway, so Sandra comes across as a loving mother, sharing pictures of Rod as a child, always seemingly happy and talking about how close the two of them were. Like one picture in particular was him having his uh, sandwiches after school one day, big cheesy grin on his face. And she's like tearing up showing these pictures. Uh But then more articles that I read describe her as a drug using heavy drinking prostitute Mm -hmm. and this is self-proclaimed as well she's gone on to admit this and according to many uh, or and according to close friends of Rod she was abusive and also mentally ill Mm -hmm. so their life wasn't quite as you know airy-fairy as she was trying to make it out to be they moved around a lot uh, specifically between um, Murray Kentucky and Eustace in Florida, where Sandra's parents ended up getting a house. So Rod spent a lot of time either living with Sandra's parents or living in public housing. While staying with his grandparents, it is said, trigger warning, <laughs> for all of those, there is uh, lots of talk of sexual abuse and 
animal um mutilation. Cru- animal cruelty and mutilation in this so while staying with his parents it is said that rob rod was raped by his own grandfather Jeez. at the age of five and there are reports of molestation but no charges were ever filed now sandra and her sister have also gone to court alleging that the father has sexually abused them mm. that the father was involved with a cult mm. that he let all of the cult members you know abuse and rape rod and the girls but both the grandfather and grandmother are like strong members of uh some fucking like baptist church or some shit in the area where they live in they're they, it keeps getting thrown out of court basically so i don't know there's too much conjecture basically to put that in as a fact so they are a member of a cult well yeah <laughs> <laughs> christian cult anyway Sandra and Rod would often go to the movies together where they would watch horror movies, basically. It sounded like pretty fucking cool. Um, It said the two of them began to obsess over these films, their favorite being The Crow. Nice. Yeah, I still have never seen that. Lame. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So Rod would actually borrow his mom's clothes. Like there was a particular black top that he would borrow and like take her makeup and do his makeup like The Crow and shit like that. Cool. Yeah, cool, like, typical little kid shit. Mm-hmm. Maybe not in Eustace, Florida, but but very cool. Yeah, so uh, Sandra admitted that she would allow Rod to smoke cigarettes and weed, and, like, she didn't really care if he was going to school or not. Mm. He was expelled from school in the ninth grade, which is around 14 years of age, which I had to Google because I wasn't sure. You could have sure. just asked me. <laughs> You weren't here. (laughs) (laughs) You're never here. (laughs) I have so many questions. (laughs) But yeah, so I'm getting like, that's around second year for our Irish listeners. Anyway, I don't fucking know about the English ones. Whatever way your schools work. About 14 anyway, he was expelled from school. But in the time between moving back to Murray and being kicked out of school, he ended up meeting an older boy called Stephen Jaden Murphy. Mm Mm-hmm. So he just goes by Jaden, right? And according to Jaden, he had seen Rod around the school and felt he was a kindred spirit. They both wore all black, had the same kind of style. Apparently, the other kids would try to get them to fight. But Jaden followed Rod into one of his classes one day and introduced himself. So I think they had a mutual friend who we'll meet later on. Okay. So Jaden is a member of the vampiric community. Nice. And Jaden is his... I think self-given vampiric name. Okay. He is also a self-professed sire. He taught Rod all about the vampiric ways and even embraced Rod himself, claiming Rod as his chosen one. So to embrace or cross over in vampiric terms is when a vampire draws his own blood and then his victims or protégés mixes it together and they both drink this concoction of their both of their bloods and then like the other person is now a vampire so okay so these are not victims then these are it's a consensual thing oh sorry yeah 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 okay i don't know yeah it's it's completely consensual victim is a wrong word to use there that's one of the main driving points of um the vampiric community is everything is 100 percent consensual good even down to like you know the old myth like they have to ask permission to come in or else they can't mm-hmm. enter your property. Like, mm-hmm. I think that might be somewhere where, you know, that crossover is. 
anyway, once they are embraced or cross over, they are then bound together no matter what in life and death. Cool. I like that. Yeah. According to Jaden, it is the ultimate display of love. Mm. Jaden had known all about the dark side, as he said, mm. since he was around five years old. He said his whole family were hunters, and one day he and his uncle drained a deer's blood into a jar, and they then sat on the porch drinking it together from glasses. Wild. Yeah, apparently his mother found out and flipped out, but they just laughed at her. They're like, we're just sitting here drinking this blood and that's it and all about. <laughs> like, you silly woman. Yeah, back inside. <laughs> Away from these men doing make men us, things. <laughs> make us sandwiches. Yeah, for our blood. <laughs> they, the gang used to hang around, like, uh, Murphy and Jaden and uh, fucking Rod and their friends used to hang around in this, like, old abandoned building in Murray. And, like, just do general teenager bullshit Mm -hmm. but they also did do these bloodletting rituals they were all with each other with each other yeah Mm. again totally consensual um i think there was a lot of like just teenage fucking messing around with each other fooling around like i'm i don't know this is me piecing it together from these fucking terrible early 2000s documentaries where it's like you know a girl like fucking puts a needle in her arm and then everybody has sex with her and that's a vampire like you know what I mean what it's all fuck? like suggestive bullshit but I think it is just kids being kids like you know everybody like yeah. touching each other kissing each other whatever mm-hmm. exploring their sexualities thank you that's exactly what I was trying to say <laughs> yeah but anyway so Rod now believed himself to be a 500 year old vampire with the name Visago mm. which was given to him by Jaden when he sired him like Hotel Trivago. No. <laughs> <laughs> Hotel Visago? No? Okay. So, Visago was the ninth crowned prince of hell. How many are there? Uh, I don't fucking know. More than nine, though, apparently. Okay. Or at least nine. Hmm. Now, also around this time, Rod had prog- progressed from smoking weed and doing acid occasionally Whoa. to actually using heroin and cocaine intravenously. Yeah, now he's still only around 14 or 15. Damn. This, um, like when he would, well, I can't remember. I'm going to sound so fucking lame right now. Mm. But the mom called it something. Oh, she called it crank. Mm. Which I thought was like street name for meth. But she was referring to this. Anyway, when she when he would do like, you know, inject the fucking heroin and coke together, he would become extremely violent. And I guess, like, it, it takes him in fits. Like, he'll be, like, up one second and way down the next with the heroin. So he would, like, switch on a fucking dime. Start, like, shouting, hurling abuse at his mother. She said that uh, he started treating her like a dog. Punching holes in wall, all di- in walls. All this kind of shit. So n- he was now surrounded by people in his vampire family. Who really thought this guy was just, you know, so fucking cool. So they thought he was cool that he was doing all these drugs and being a fucking asshole. I mean, yeah, but um, like they were all just doing drugs together. And, oh, like, they were. You know, okay. experiment. I'm assuming. Okay. You know, but they did interview a good few, well, like a handful of his friends and people who claimed to be his friends, at least like this one girl, April Shy Doden. I think that's how you pronounce it. She described him as beautiful, charismatic, charming even elegant 
She said life with him was awesome. She was like, you never knew what was going to happen. What way the day was going to take you. <laughs> like Weird. completely fucking. I don't know a 14 year old that I would describe as elegant. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Another word for elegant that I think she might have meant is pompous and arrogant. Ah. Know it all. She said all this while dressed in what looked like a dollar store devil costume, complete with like the red horns, fake blood on her face, and like white makeup. And apparently she was dressed as his fantasy. Do you want me to dress up like that for you? Please. <laughs> so Rod told April that he had an evil side and that it was taking over him slowly and he was scared. I'm going to give another trigger warning. This is where the animal uh, mutilation comes in. Animal cruelty comes in. His behavior was becoming increasingly unpredictable. He apparently cut someone so deep in one of his bloodletting ceremonies that they could see the muscle. Oof. Yeah. And according to his friends, they were all hanging around one day and there was a kitten no. floating around. And he was like petting the kitten like normal or whatever. When all of a sudden he just picked it up and slammed it into the base of a tree. Oh, no. Yeah, killed what it instantly. Asshole. You don't fuck with kittens. <laughs> like that documentary, yeah, don't, yeah, fuck, don't with fuck with cats. cats. But apparently like this was, this really like scared the shit out of his friends. They were like, on, the, they on had an, never seen this before. On an off note, if you're ever curious, look up baby beavers. They're so cute. Yeah, they are really fucking cute. Um... But anyway, he, he just laughed this off then when everybody was like, you know, noticeably shocked. Yeah. He just laughed it off when he was like, I'll do anything for a thrill. Uh. And this was supposedly the turning point. But none of the documentaries, cause I watched one main documentary, like long documentary, and then skimmed through another couple and then watched like some shorter like YouTube documentaries that all kind of covered the same ground. None mentioned this, but I actually googled it specifically because it was such a fucking strange point that or it was strange to me that it wasn't covered in these documentaries because this next thing is way worse than what happened with the cat what so he was never charged with this so i think that's why it's forgotten about so i can't say for definite if it was him but it is assumed that feral or rod along with someone else broke into the Murray Calloway County Animal Shelter on October 14th, 1996 and let dozens of dogs out of their kennels, vandalized it and also killed two little puppers. What the fuck is wrong with him? I know. A quote from Sheriff he's Stan on drugs, Scott. Apparently. Well, yeah. <laughs> and he believes he's a 500-year-old vampire. Like he 100% believes this at this point. A quote from Sheriff Stan Scott. We're dealing with some sick individuals and I want them caught. This goes way beyond a simple breaking and entering. One of these animals was stomped to death. And the other had its hind legs either pulled or cut off. This is a case of absolute vandalism. And these people need to be caught. That's how I'm assuming that sheriff spoke. So this happened in October. And in November, Farrell gets Scott Anderson, Charity Kesey, and Dana Cooper to drive to Eustace, Florida to pick up his friend Heather Wendorf. And remember, they he had been in school in Eustace. The plan was to drive to New Orleans and live together as one big happy vampiric family. Scott Anderson 
16 years old, came from, quote, grinding poverty with an alcoholic father who had abused his mother. Charity Kesey, also 16, was said to be Rod's girlfriend, although I found a letter, a physical letter that's for sale on some website, which she sent to, or which is addressed to Star, which is Sandra's nickname, remember, and Rod, in which she blatantly states that she is into women and is also in a committed relationship. Mm-hmm. Also in this letter, she's begging Rod's mother to forgive her, saying she would never want to take her man away from her because she's not into men. Mm. This is how this comes out. Like she's only into women, like so not to worry about her. Again, this isn't mentioned in any other uh, article or anything that I found. I just thought it was super strange. And I'm assuming that the, uh, you know, the papers just ran with it and said, oh, it was his girlfriend because they're the same age. Mm. But then there is also CCTV footage of the two of them making out. So I don't know. I, from the sounds of this vampire family was kind of just one big fuck fest, mm. you know. So Dana Cooper, nineteen, I read somewhere that she was the reason why Rod was involved with the family, but it's made pretty clear everywhere else that Jaden brought him in. So I think she might have been the mutual friend who helped get the two introduced, and she's the same age as Jaden. So according to her, Rod had actually crossed her over himself, even though. She's older than him and whatever. And she had been having a shitty time at home and wanted to go with them for a fresh start. So Rod was supposed to look for permission before he crossed anyone over. Specifically from Jaden because he had crossed him over. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that they would live forever and Jaden would, you know, give permission to who can enter and leave his family or whatever. So this caused like a lot of tension. So they had already fallen out because of this in the past rod met heather wendorf who was only 15 at this stage while she was still while he was still in school down in florida she was described as a quote troubled eustace high schools or troubled eustace high sophomore who rebelled against her parents over cleaning her room and other trivial matters Mm. so again a regular fucking kid Mm -hmm. according to heather's sister Rod used to call her collect, so they stayed in touch, but these collect calls, like, caused a fucking huge uh, phone bill for her parents, and when they found out, they put a stop to it, which apparently made her very angry. So, Heather told Rod that her parents were abusive. She said her dad was violent, and her mother did nothing to stop him. According to Farrell himself, she led him to believe that her dad was also sexually abusive, and she said that she wanted to run away. So, they all piled into Scott Anderson's little Buick. And it was like little, I can't remember what the fucking make of the car was. But it was just a little Buick hatchback. And they head for Eustace. Which, today, is around a 12-hour straight drive. No stops. So, like, that's quite a journey. I can imagine back then, there was probably less highways or whatever as well. And according to Dana... The atmosphere in the car was like pretty tense fairly early on into the the journey. Everybody was squeezed into this little hatchback. All the possessions that they had grabbed were like stuffed in with them. They had them on their laps, whatever. So they drive the whole way down, only stopping for, you know, to use restrooms and gas stations and grab food. 
on November 25th, they arrived to pick up Heather. They wanted to steal her parents' Ford Explorer because it was a larger vehicle and they were adding another person, Heather, to the mix. So they told her to leave the garage door open and she told Rod where they kept the keys. So before they could do anything, they had to cross Heather over. She was still just a regular mortal. (laughs) So Farrell took her to a, a cemetery and they performed the ritual. And they, at this stage, Farrell had also been taking acid and t- like dropping pills or whatever like consistently throughout the day. And he went with Scott to Heather's parents' house. The three girls stayed in, with the Buick. And they were like, look, we'll come back and get you once we get the car. So once they get into the garage, because the door has already been open or was left open for them, they look around for something to use to protect themselves. Now at this point, because now I've seen interviews with Rod today, and I've seen interviews when he was first, like when he was like 16, 17. He said, the first interview I saw when he was younger, he said he went into the garage and he was looking for something. But he sees a chainsaw and he says, no, no, it's too loud. And he sees an axe and he goes, no, nah, it's been done before. And he sees a crowbar, so he grabs the crowbar. Now, in his later interviews, he says, Oh, I was such a small, weedy teenager, and I thought that Heather's dad was going to be, you know, this big, fully grown man. I wouldn't stand a chance if I got caught. I was so scared. Yeah, so, like, he's kind of changed his tune. It's like... In later years. But in both situations, it kind of sounds like he had intent to beat this man. Yeah. You know? So they go into the house, him and Scott, bearing in mind he's also like tripping balls. The first thing they see is Heather's dad sleep on the couch. So they walk past them into the back bedrooms where Heather told them that that's where they keep the keys in a little dish on top of their dresser. So he can't find the key. And at this point, Farrell claims he just saw red. I had to really try hard not to just write Rod sees red. Because I thought that sounded funny. But anyway, he just goes back out into the living room and starts beating the dad with the crowbar. The dad's asleep, Mm -hmm. or was asleep still. He just starts wailing on him. And a quote from this fucking idiot. I was trying to impale him. I didn't know at the time that you need sharp objects to impale people. What kind of fucking vampire are you? In the 500 years that you have been alive, you don't know how to impale someone? Literally, a spike. That's all you fucking need, you twat. My next point here is fucking smug, arrogant wanker. I fucking hate this guy. Right? Like, I real. the more I was researching this, I was like, this guy's a prick. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) So, unfortunately, Heather's mom hears all the commotion and comes into the room and confronts him asking who they are and what they want before throwing a, quote, scalding hot cup of coffee. Now, I will just say here, Americans do not make scalding hot coffee. Okay, those coffee makers that you guys use, like, way, well, today still, they make warm coffee. They don't make scalding hot coffee. So I think that's another point where he was like, oh, I was acting in defense. Bullshit. He strikes her with the other end of the crowbar, reportedly hitting her so hard that he severed uh, her brainstem, killing her instantly. Damn. But he continued to beat her, even though she was already dead. 
there's mention of the bodies being burned with a V shape, which is supposed to be his symbol for, I mean, I guess V for fucking vampire. I don't know. And there was blood everywhere. There's reports of him like dancing around the bodies and that. I I think that's, uh, you know, stretching it. So Scott was with him this whole time. And apparently he was just frozen stiff. He was completely shocked by Rod's actions. But once the parents were dead, they just went straight back into, okay, we got to find the keys. And they were exactly where Heather told them they would be, in the dish on top of the dresser. They stole a pearl necklace and some other bits and the couple's credit card. So now, at this point, they drive back to the girls. And they were waiting in Scott's car, with, which apparently barely had any gas left. Like, these kids were fucking broke. So when Heather sees the truck... Right, they're like flashing and beeping, like you know, and cheering and shit, being like, "Hey, we got it." But she thinks it's her parents coming to get her back, so she floors it in Scott's car. But I think this particular thing is bullshit. Yeah, because she knew specifically that they were going back to the house mm. for the parents' truck. Yeah. And so anyway, the guys pull up beside them, still moving. They roll down the windows. They're like, "Here, it, it's us." They pull over. Start transferring their stuff and change the plates. Supposedly, while Heather was still in the car, Rod is showing off to Charity and Dana, showing them the crowbar, which is still covered in uh, Heather's parents' blood. And all this is happening, and the two girls like, are in shock. But Heather still doesn't find out until they've left town. I don't know. In an interview with Dana, she tells them like how afraid they were and like he was a totally different person he apparently kept taking out the crowbar to show them he had it under the the driver's seat or he had it under the seat of the explorer and he would just take it out periodically on the drive and just be like yeah and then i did this or i did that all the while now heather who has figured it out is just quiet i guess yeah uh heather's older sister arrived home from work later that night to find her parents dead her sister missing and their car stolen. She rang 911. Uh, still in shock. To report the crime. And by November 27th. Murder warrants had been put out for all five teens. Also on the, 25th, on the 27th. When these warrants were put out. And people were like on high alert. Looking for these people. Naturally in Murray, Kentucky. You know the police department went full on. Investigating. Thinking like oh they went down there together. And now they're going to come back. So this 16-year-old Callaway County High School student tells the police that he was approached by either Rod or Scott, he doesn't know, that day at school and was threatened by them. The student, perhaps inspired by the O.J. Simpson chase, said the group was driving a white Ford Bronco. Police were taking the student's statement at his house when the power went out due to a nearby traffic accident. Sheriff Scott told the ledger, which is the local newspaper at the time or he told him that he sent in every available unit to the boy's house thinking that the power outage was the vampire clan's doing turns out the boy was lying just completely made this shit up out of the off the top of his head i don't know why but like he ended up facing like felony charges because of this good also this statement led to a high-speed chase involving a white bronco later that night in Grace <laughs> County. The guys, again, the white bronco is like, what the fuck did I do? <laughs> He's like, what the fuck? 
He's like, yeah. shit. I, he's like, I, I, I didn't mean to take that man's pen at the bank. <laughs> yeah. I was just trying to sign a check. I thought they were free. Strong hand. <laughs> um, but yeah, all because this one kid was like, I'm going to tell a lie. Mm. <laughs> you know? Here is your felony. <laughs> yeah. So according to Rod himself, he was just living his ultimate fucking dream. This was everything to him. He believes himself to be the most wanted man in America, even though he was only 16. He said that he said something along the lines of every single cop is out there looking for me. What a rush, man. So they were aiming for New Orleans, but I guess they were trying to lay low because they went off the grid for the next few days. According to Dana, they stopped somewhere. Now, I'm assuming this is somewhere in somewhere in Louisiana. It could have even been like the outskirts of New Orleans. But whatever it was, they were in a really bad part of town. And she said that Rod was there trying to meet up with his old friend, Chicken Man. Now, Chicken Man, that rung a bell with me. I was like, hold on a minute. So Chicken Man or Prince Kiyama, I might be saying that wrong and I'm sorry if I am. He was acknowledged far and wide as the one true king of new orleans voodoo so i'm not going down that road but he seemed like a man of some repute he was definitely a well-known character Mm. and i just can't imagine him having anything to do with this kid yeah you know so i don't know where that came from i think maybe it could have just been rod spouting off like you know shooting out these names that he had heard through the fucking you know because of his fame or notoriety or whatever Mm mm-hmm and yeah. just trying to impress the rest of this okay you know family but either way while they were there they pulled up to this place and Dana said like it was the worst part of town and they were heading for a specific like apartment complex and there was all people in there like it just looked rough it looked so bad that pol- they saw a police car at the other end and the police car instead of just driving straight towards them drove around the block to come catch them at the entrance and they were like what are you doing here? Rod speaks up and he says, oh, I'm just here to visit a friend. And the police are like, oh, well, like I wouldn't go down there if I was you unless you're armed. Like you don't have weapons on you, do you? They say, no, 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 it's, it's fine. Like I know my friend, he lives right here. So with that, the police are like, well, you know, you should really go back, but whatever. They piss off. But it turns out they were actually just there to rob a house. Mm. And the house that they go to had two cars in the in the driveway. And at this stage, Rod is fully armed. I think he stole a gun from Heather's place. Again, I only saw that in one particular story, so I'm not 100%. But either way, they had weapons. And Dana said herself, like, at this stage, she was just praying that there was going to be no one in the house because if there was, he was going to kill them, whether they were in their way or not. Luckily, these people must have been on fucking vacation or something. Because even though there was two cars in the driveway, they break in, there's nobody in the house. They steal, like, the piggy bank, a crossbow, and, like, fucking bolts and stuff like that. And they leave. And they literally, they coasted in on fumes. Now they had enough money to get themselves to Baton Rouge. This is, again, they are just children. Like, I have to keep reminding myself this. Mm-hmm. So they get to Baton Rouge, and they go, and they start, like, sightseeing. They go to this like war destroyer ship that's on display and then they walk down the road and they ditch the fucking murder weapon, you know, typical kid shit. Then they head to an arcade 
And while at the arcade, Rod makes Charity call her grandma. She calls her grandma and her grandma gives her her mom's number. And her mom says, look, I don't care where you are. Like, let me just send you the money. Like, I just want you to have money so you can spend them. Do whatever with it. Like, you know, be safe. I'll wire the money to such and such a place. So she has the money sent to a hotel. Now, the girl Dana said she reckons she knew this was a setup from the beginning. And she also thinks that Rod did too. But that, to me, it sounded like maybe Rod did know that the jig was up, that they couldn't go much further, but he wanted to be able to blame somebody else, you know? Anyway, they go to the hotel or wherever it was to pick up the Western Union or the the money transfer, and the police show up and arrest them, and that's it. They're taken away. The policeman noted that Heather was the only one who actually appeared to be upset when they were arrested. All the footage of Rod shows him being a complete showman. He is loving every fucking second of it. Blowing kisses to the cameras. Like slamming his face up against window, Like making dumb faces. As he's walking past a reporter or whatever. You know the reporters are shouting out like why'd you do it? Why'd you do it? And he just goes God bless America. Keeps walking. Like he does it with a smile on his face. Like he's just taking the piss out of everyone. The media went absolutely fucking banana skins with this story and started calling the gang the vampire clan apparently that comes specifically from the uk independent they named them that and they just started blaming everyone for everything they were saying oh they played dungeons and dragons and mm. and vamps which is like a vampire version of dungeons and dragons and was this around the satanic panic well it was 1996 mm. i mean i think even if it happened today they'd still say oh it was marilyn manson I seen them. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Or fucking whatever. Like, they listened I, to... I think it was around the... Because was it the Memphis 3? Wasn't that around the 90s? Yeah. I think, like, to be honest, that whole satanic panic mm-hmm. spanned from, like, the 70s to the fucking early mm. 2000s, basically. Mm. Like, even Bowling for Colin... Or fucking the oh. Columbine Massacre. Yeah. They started blaming Satanists and heavy rock and roll, you know? Remember when goth rap used was like a movement for a very short time? Nope. Yeah, there was uh, goth rappers. That sounds fucking awful. I'm Ra- not gonna lie. <laughs> Rapping about graveyards and bats and shit. <laughs> I'm so serious. Oh no, I know, I believe you. <laughs> um. Anyway, so from the Independent UK, the events in Murray have sparked a wider concern about vampire worship especially among American teenagers. Ever since the publication of the Anne Rice blockbuster Interview with a Vampire, police and FBI officials have reported a growing upward trend in vampire incidents. These accelerated after Tom Cruise made bloodsucking look so glamorous in the movie of Rice's book. In Murray, that movie has been one of the most popular rentals among local youths, and Farrell once had to pay a $30 overdue charge for keeping the film more than two weeks. Farrell had been trying to change his his name to Lestat, the central figure in Interview with the Vampire. So yeah, you know how I feel about people throwing the blame on like modern uh, media or anything like that. Uh, you love it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hate it. I hate it so much. Yeah, I mean like I, I, I think it's crazy. I would like I've read I've read all those books. Even the new ones that have been still coming out. And you've never killed anybody. I never wanted to be a fucking vampire and kill anyone. Yeah, like I can understand maybe 
I don't know, wanting to dress up as a vampire for like sexy role play or so, like you know what I mean? Yeah. But not anyway. We're not going down that road. We're not those people, I guess. Yeah. We're just normies. <laughs> Simps. Apparently, Rod knew how to work this. Rod knew how to work as Rod. <laughs> Apparently, Rod knew how to work this like media attention and completely fed into it. He claimed he was being framed by another rival vampire family. He made all sorts of ridiculous statements. And when reporters shouted questions at him, he would say, he would just say shit like, God bless America, mm. sarcastically. Yeah, yeah. All that kind of thing. Like he put on such a good show. I hate to give him any credit for that, but yeah. he did. Like he really played the part. Mm-hmm. The whole time he was on trial, he acted a bit crazy. According to interviews with him, he was just trying to look out for the other four. Trying to make it seem like he was the crazy one. He was the leader. And the rest of them were just following orders. Which I think is true to a certain extent. But there was like Dana and Charity. They both knew that he was going there to kill Heather's parents. Or at least they confessed that to the police that they knew. Yeah. So they didn't try and stop him. I get it. I also don't think that he did that. To, like, be a martyr for his friends or anything like that. I think he purely did that just so he could be like, no, don't look at them. They're just followers. Look at me. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? I'm the mastermind, you know? Yeah, I am the vampire. Um, But again, this whole case is just so fucking convoluted. They called Jaden Murphy, the guy who sired him in, to come in and explain to the court just what it meant to be a vampire. To be a member of the family and again this guy is another fucking attention seeker mm. loves talking about himself mm. and you know how he influenced fucking everybody and all this and that like as far as he's concerned he is the head of this family or clan or whatever you want to call it he thinks very highly about himself and just has a very dramatic way about him like i was saying you know he goes on he claims that rod like he in one of these interviews in TVs, like he betrayed my trust, he betrays my love, and like by embracing these other people without coming to me for permission, all this bollocks, like yeah. And if he does hear this, because there is like a very good chance that he will, because one of the YouTube videos I watched, he did like a quote personal interview form over Facebook Messenger. Like the dude fucking loves talking about this. That's interesting. So, like he he kind of sounds like the character in uh Anne Rice's books, is it Marius or Armand, where he's just like angry at Lestat for just being out there and well, not following the rules and shit. I think it's interesting how it's there's a parallel between what they're acting out in real life and, and this, in the literature. Well, I mean maybe that's not a coincidence. But either way, if he does hear this, I don't care. Like, that's exactly what I think of him. I think he's an attention-seeking fucking dramatic bitch, basically. (laughs) Um, No offense. Feel free to reach out. (laughs) And, like, if you do hear this and you want to, like, clear that, reach out. We'll we'll interview you, by all means. Um, Another thing he said was he betrayed his love because he threatened him and his fiance. It starts to sound like a big fucking, like, love triangle basically he's gone on to say that sandra this is Jaden still 
He's gone on to say that Sandra wanted an incestuous relationship with Rod and that he was saving him from her. Jaden was saving Rod from his own mother. He says that no matter what, Rod is still his family. Nothing can stop that. That's how deep the ties of the vampire family go. Sandra, Rod's mom, was also apparently wrapped up in all this bullshit too, even telling reporters at the time, oh, we live forever. You know, us vampire folk. She was also charged with trying to solicit a boy of 14 with lust-filled letters, saying shit like, let's spend our eternity together. We need to get you crossed over so I can be with you for all time and eternity, all this bullshit. Turned out that 14-year-old boy was Jaden Murphy's little brother. Whoa. Yeah, so this is just such fucking white trash stuff to me. You know, everybody knows everybody and they're all doing each other's cousins and this shit. And then out of nowhere, like, she was apparently in love with Jaden too. So in a letter to him, apparently saying, like, I love you, Jaden, and I always will for, like, eternity and beyond. See you in my dreams, my seductive dark angel. Anyway, Charity Kesey was sentenced to 10 and a half years. Dana Cooper got 17 and a half. Because Dana was the only one who was actually in, who actually was an adult at the time of the murders. But they both knew that he intended to kill Heather's parents and did nothing to stop it. Scott Anderson. This one, I do think he was um, like overly sentenced, if that's the term. Because he received life in prison without parole. I'm not entirely sure what for. Like, I, I didn't find out the charges. I just know that he was, his sentence was reduced to 40 years as he was only 16 at the time. So he'll be eligible for release in 2031. I'm assuming he was charged with accessory to murder. But if Rod is to be believed, he had nothing to do with it and genuinely was in shock about this whole thing. Heather, the daughter of the the people who Rod murdered, she got off with nothing. I personally think Rod took matters into his own hands but he has since blamed her over and over again. And you'll see, because me and you are going to watch some of these interviews later, so I can show you, his story is constantly changing over the years. Rod was sentenced to death for the murders of Richard Wendorf, 49, and Naoma Ruth Queen Wendorf, 54. He held the record for youngest prisoner in America on death row. However, in November 2000, his sentence was commuted to life in prison, as he was a minor at the time of the murders. So where are they now, you ask me? Charity Kesey was released in 2006 after serving most of her sentence, although she was caught drinking another inmate's blood while in prison. I can't find anything else since her release. Do you remember April Shy Doden? we mentioned like way back at the start she was the one that was dressed in like a dollar store devil fucking costume with the stupid fake horns she went on to have three kids and she then left those three kids with her mother and joined the traveling circus yeah i don't apparently she's back now i don't fucking know (laughs) she just sounds like a free spirit anyway uh steven jaden murphy Remember, Jaden was like his fucking self-given nickname or some bullshit. The self-righteous vampire sire that is the epitome of morality, apparently. He got arrested and charged for three years for 
for possession of meth last year. Last year. Kentucky Corrections comes up as soon as you Google him, and the picture really looks the exact same as him. And the aliases in this like little Kentucky criminal profiler or profile are all correlating to him. So he does look a lot heavier than he used to, but then again, so do I. And so this is where the timeline kind of messes up with the YouTube video that I watched was published in January of 2020. So I think the court hearings might have been going on at that time because I think he got arrested in June or July 2019. So again, if if you're sitting in your jail cell and you're offended by this, get in touch with us. Clear your name. We're all about it. Since being imprisoned, Farrell has had a handful of girlfriends and was even married to a woman at one stage. All pen pal lovers. And he got in trouble with uh, on a few occasions for like making out and groping visitors. <laughs> you know, like these ladies are throwing themselves at him. He is now engaged to a lady from Texas, naturally, who is vouching for him to get a shot at parole. She says she will give him a home and make sure he has a job. He has taken many classes, has even taught some classes, and now has a license in wastewater treatment. He cut off all contact with Jaden for religious purposes about 15 years ago. That's how deep the uh, vampire connection goes. I definitely believe in second chances, but I also believe that some people are master manipulators. I hate to give him that much credit, but I do believe that he only started giving the correct answers and showing how much he can change when he figured out that there actually was a possibility for parole. Because before that point, he was still getting in trouble, like over dumb shit, like and being in prison, obviously it's not as dumb, but like smoking cigarettes, uh, possession of marijuana and shit like that while in prison so i don't know i really think if he does get out or if he gets a chance of parole i don't know if he'll reoffend, but i think he's definitely working the system right now to just to go his way yeah i agree with you and when you watch the interviews with me later on you'll i think you will still agree with me okay my sources are travelinggirl.com hauntedhistorytours.com, hauntedneworleanstours.com, trytoscare.me, YouTube channel, The Ghost, had that short interview on it, tampabay.com, a documentary called The Vampire Diaries on a channel called Mariola Gerum, or Jerum. It's a YouTube channel that she didn't make the documentary, it's just it's an old documentary that she published. Um, Oxygen.com, and wkms.org so yep that's my story and i have a surprise for you what so you know i like to put faces to the people that you talk about in your story and like the places or whatever yeah so i went ahead and googled rod farrell and i found a reddit post a subreddit titled i was a member of rod farrell's vampire clan Oh, yeah, I actually did uh, <laughs> briefly read through that. Please tell me more. Okay. Which was connected to a double murder back in 96. AMA. I don't know what that means. Ask me anything. Oh. So, um, I guess this person asked, 
something I'm always been curious about. Did you guys all legitimately believe you were vampires or that Rod was a vampire? Or was it more a thing where at some level you knew this wasn't reality? And this person, Visago Clan Fledgling, said, <laughs> I can't speak for the other clan members. I'm sure that not all of us believed it, but I certainly did. I, legit I legitimately believe that Rod was a vampire and that he turned me into one. Yeah. Well, um, that just goes to show the level of persuasion behind it. Yeah. I mean, like, when I think back, right, when I was 16, first of all, I was a dickhead. Second of all, I genuinely believed I was a fucking rock star who just hadn't made it yet. Yeah. You know what I mean, like, I thought I was Jim Morrison. I thought I was, like, Slash's best friend and shit. But at the heart of it, I still knew, like, I have to get, like, a part-time job to pay for <laughs> shit. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. there's a certain amount of dream that you can have without really thinking, no, I actually am a vampire. <laughs> like, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, where's that cutoff point? Well, uh, Lazy the Sloth asked, <laughs> how did you end up joining? Do you have the V mark? If you do, what's a V mark, Adam? Oh, remember I told you, um, so it was like a, what's the word, like a brand that would burn a, the mark of a V into the into their um, new family members. And they also claim to have found it on the bodies of Heather's, Heather Wendorf's parents. Mm. But it did, they didn't actually mention it an awful lot in the articles. So I don't know how true it actually was. If you do, you should add it as proof. How do you feel about the murder? What was a typical day with the vampire clan like? <laughs> what did you eat as a vampire? <laughs> Vasago clan fledgling replied, Rod had a way of seeking out the loners and outcasts, and I was no exception. He found me during lunch and noticed <laughs> my self-harm scars. He was covered in self-harm scars himself, but not from any self-hatred, rather from feeding his clan members. He asked if the scars were for drinking blood, and I told him yes, which was a lie, of course. He asked if I was a member of another clan, and when I said no, he asked if I wanted to join his. Seeing as I had practically no other friends, I agreed. I started hanging around the clan, and before long, he crossed me over. I used to have the V-mark, but the scar has long since faded, luckily. <laughs> Imagine having to explain, to explain that to everyone who saw you shirtless. Typically, we'd hang out at Rod's house since his mother didn't mind our odd habits or at the vampire hotel, quote, vampire hotel. Yeah. We took a lot of drugs, drank each other's blood, played a lot of Vampire the Masquerade. I guess that's a game. Yeah, so that's similar to Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, that's interesting. And I only didn't mention that because I hate the way the papers blame stuff like that. Yeah. Um, For, you know, Stuff. these things, yeah. And occasionally vandalized or robbed places, although that was much less common. We did have a lot of normal days when we'd all just hang out, but as it, it was extraordinarily rare to go longer than three days without exchanging blood. Edit, forgot to answer how I feel about the murder. Honestly, at the time, it didn't surprise me at all. Rod had talked about killing people and had killed animals before. I knew he had the capacity to commit murder. Still, after being questioned by the police and being effectively shunned by the community, it drove me away from the vampire lifestyle and clans. 
I'm still not sure how I feel about it. I still consider Rod a friend, but he took it too far, and that's putting it lightly. It scares me to think that I could have easily been in Scott's place and could be in prison right now had Rod decided to take me along instead. That's crazy. Yeah. So I think that that pretty much gives us like a really good window. Yeah, and I did look through that, but uh, I think I just had kind of a mouthful here. <laughs> yeah. Um. But yeah, I mean, I get it. I get the whole being a lonely 16-year-old and all of a sudden being accepted by these guys who like you look up to and you think are really cool and they're doing like dark shit. I just think you still have to know that you're not really a fucking vampire, you know what I mean? Yeah, I I think like accept that much responsibility. Yeah, I mean it, and then it could be like those people that lie, they live the lie, so it's true to them. Yeah, I mean, maybe. And again, if you're a member of the vampire community or know somebody who is, because I know it's still a big fucking thing, get in touch with us and let us know how it how it feels or whatever. Yeah, I mean, he could very well probably just didn't really... Because, I mean, they could be, you know, like people who do consider some themselves vampires and they would never kill somebody, you know? And um, they just have that thing, you know, where they just drink each other's blood consensually and um where was i going with this i don't know in my head though it's like i get the fetish and like living the fetish or whatever like that yeah i guess it's the same as being a furry right yeah again i don't want to offend furries or vampires yeah or both but that that in my head that's the the link Anyway, yeah. I think we need to move on. Yeah. I, Tell me a story. I get it. <laughs> but I guess that's why we're not vampires or furries ourselves. We're just not that dedicated. <laughs> like, this is as dark as we get, you know what I mean? Yeah. Hang on. So, I'm going to start out with a collection of stories of people's experiences inside morgues. Scary stories, of course. Okay. I like it. All right. So, this one's called Holding Hands. If you guys hear any weird noises, it is just our annoying-ass cat, Max. Yeah, he's driving me up the wall right now. Not literally, obviously, because he has little tiny paws. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I used to work in tissue recovery. Uh, uh, do you know what that is? No, but it sounds horrific. Oh, I'm thinking like... What, trying to find the tissues? Use Where's tissue. Where's the tissue? Like, use tissue. <laughs> no, I'd say it's like facial reconstruction and shit like that, right? Oh, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. That's a guess. My least favorite part was prepping the donor for the recovery process. Oh, yeah, I guess so. As it included shaving the arms and legs. Once we had a donor who was very freshly deceased, I held his hand to shave his arm and his fingers curled around my hand. Oh. God. As rigor mortis set in. That's so creepy. <laughs> I think I would just die. Yeah. Like I would actually die on the spot. <laughs> All right. This next one's called The Crying Girl. My first experience at work was when I first started my embalming career. I had just started my shift and was using a restroom in the back. When I came out, I heard what sounded like a girl sobbing and the sound of feet shuffling around on the floor. The floor was kind of gravelly and had a distinct sound if you scooted your feet on it. 
The sound was coming from around a corner that led into a small room where we would store embalmed bodies ready to be delivered to their respective funeral home. I figured someone was upset and crying, so I snuck in, still hearing the sobbing. When I peeked around the corner, the room was empty. No living person in there. I noticed that there was only one body in there as well. A young girl. She shot herself on the side of the head. I wasn't scared per se, but I'm pretty sure you could hear, you could audibly hear my heartbeat. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> that, again, like, because this is a job that, like, obviously I'm nowhere near qualified, nor ever would be yeah. qualified enough to do it. You got to be a kind of person. Yeah, but I do think that it would be such a cool job to have. Like, grim, obviously, but. Yeah. I'd say yes and no. Because of the smells that could possibly come from a body. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? That's why they get the uh, Vicks rub mm. under the nose, remember, in um, Silence of the Lambs? It's been a long time since oh, I've okay, seen that. Okay. I'm a little older than you. Okay, lady. I don't remember. Nobody <laughs> get your walking. <clears throat> no, I've outgrown it. <laughs> um, the next one is called The Little Girl. My brother is a mortician at a facility in New York, and one night when I was visiting, he asked if I wanted to go to work with him so I wouldn't be alone in his house. I reluctantly said yes. What's the worst that can happen? Right? Boy, was I wrong. To start off with, this place was creepy as hell, dark, and smelled funny. He said it was normal, and it was probably the smell of formaldehyde, so I just ignored it. After a little time, off chit-chatting and catching up, he told me he needed to go to work, but that I could stay in the little adjoined office and watch some TV. So I did. The entrance to the morgue had swinging doors that you could hear when someone was coming in or out of them. He came to check on me a few times, so I heard them. After a few hours of being by myself, I started to doze off. When the sudden sound of the doors awoke me, Expecting for my brother to walk in and greet me, there was nothing. Again, I started to fall asleep, and yet again, the loud doors went off. You couldn't tell if someone was coming in or out, but they kept on swinging and didn't stop. Thinking my brother was playing a joke on me, I got up and went to tell him to stop, but to my surprise, there was only a little girl standing there. What? <laughs> playing with the doors. Pushing them. Hi, I told her. She looked at me and didn't say a word. One of the things that caught my eye was a pretty blue dress with a big pink ribbon she was wearing. Your dress is pretty, and the bow makes it stand out. Again, nothing. She looked down and started to run the opposite way, towards a lonesome hall. I thought the kid belonged to another employee, so I went back to my chair. Hours later, when my brother's shift was over, he finally woke me up to go back to his place. As we were driving, I started to tell him about the doors and the little girl with a cute blue dress and a big pink ribbon. He slammed the brakes. What the hell? Why did you break? Tessa, he told me, with a chilling look in his eyes. Last night, I did an autopsy on a little girl that drowned. She was wearing a blue dress with a pink ribbon. My blood ran cold, and I've never been to work with my brother ever again. 
fuck. <laughs> no way. That's crazy. <laughs> I like the poor little girl. That is horrific. That's sad. It's sad, yeah, but still, fuck that. Yeah. So the next segment of my story is Why called... would you go to work with your brother? Like, I'd rather be in the apartment on my own than in the fucking morgue. <laughs> Sorry. Well, you just got done saying it would be a cool job. Yeah, it, if it was my job, I'm not going to go tag along with someone. No uh, fucking way. <laughs> You're very particular. I can't be, yeah. All right, the next segment's called Sketchy Morticians. <laughs> <laughs> Brittany, well, I guess it's not all Sketchy Morticians, just weird fucking situations around dead bodies segment. So this story is about a girl named Brittany Ray Bradley. Shortly after midnight on June 27, 1998, the staff of a funeral home in London, Kentucky, was alerted that there had been a break-in. They looked around and nothing seemed to be missing. That is, until they looked in the casket of nine-year-old Brittany Ray Bradley. Brittany Ray had passed away after a two-year battle with a rare cancer. And earlier in the evening, the funeral home had hosted a visitation for her. And as for what was missing, that was her underwear. Oh, no. When they found this out, Brittany Ray's family accused her cousin... 31-year-old Mark Caleb for stealing the underwear. The police looked in the camper where he lived and found the missing underwear. What the fuck? There was no evidence of tampering of Brittany Ray's body. Caleb was still charged with third-degree burglary, abuse of a corpse, theft, and criminal mischief. That's... What the fuck, Caleb? You sick cunt. 31... I don't care how old he is. No, I'm just saying. <laughs> compare, like. I know, I know, I know. <sighs> Fucking hell. That's a weird one. I can safely say I've never heard a story like that before. That's what I'm here for. Thanks, thanks. <laughs> this one is about Julie Mott. On August 15, 2015, so not that long ago. Yeah. Friends and family of Julie Ma attended her visitation at a funeral home in San Antonio, Texas. She died at 26, but she lost her battle with with cystic fibrosis the week before. She was diagnosed with this at two years old. Sometime after the visitation, but before the funeral home closed, someone took Ma's body out of her casket and took the body with them. The body was never found. Whoa. The police couldn't pinpoint who would have taken the body, but they had a few theories. One was the ex-boyfriend, who was supposedly obsessed with her, might have taken her body. He was one of the last people seen to leave the chapel. However, after the police searched the man's car, home, and property with cadaver dogs, they came up empty-handed. Another theory is that one of the owner, one of the owners of the funeral home, Robert Tips came up with. He thinks that the body may have been stolen by someone who was strongly objected to her cremation. Either way, the funeral was sued for gross negligence. The ex-boyfriend believes that the funeral home did cremate the body, but before it was time to. Which is possible considering the next fucking stories I'm going to tell you. Okay, so like, 
they cremated her too early, like the wrong body or something. They're like, oh, fuck. What do we do now? Because um, the family are coming tomorrow. To... Yeah, it could have been. Yeah, because maybe she had like another visitation scheduled. You know, yeah, like, yeah. you know early what I'm saying? in the morning or something. Fucking hell. And like poor they lady. preemptively cremated her. Or poor girl. Yeah. Yeah. But they never fucking found the body. That's so strange. Like, I would rather them tell me, oops, we cremated her. Instead of just being like, oh, we don't know where she is. (laughs) They just wait until the next day. They're like, what? Yeah. Okay, so the next three or the next two. I have two more. I like to keep my segments pretty short. Is that a dig? I feel like that's a dig. (laughs) Well, no, because the last time I did a really long story, I felt emotionally drained. And that was the one about the... um, possession of robbie the story that inspired the exorcist that was a long one Yeah, that took it out of me and i want to keep my zen as much as possible (laughs) (laughs) for as long as i can walter this is about walter and helen pissed okay i remember writing this and i'm just like i gotta get down the pronunciation of this last name but um i gotta get it down but no I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. Pastinicas. Pastinicas. Pastinicas? Okay. Is he Greek? I like that better. Okay. <laughs> Say it again. Pastinicas. I haven't seen this word written down. Oh, by the Pastinicas. Pastinicas. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do that. Walter and Helen Pastinicas. A little about the couple. Helen Pastinicas was 65 at this time. That the shit went down. Okay. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, Helen Pesanikas, 65, was elected to the Republican State Committee in 1980 and re-elected in 82 and 84. So she's a public figure. Yeah, yeah. She's prominent. a politician. Okay. Right. Her husband, 57, was a candidate for coroner in 1984, which is apparently an office you can hold. Again, you'd like, have to be yeah, elected state for coroner, it. coroner, like head. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. In March 1982, a guy, uh, like an old man, poor guy, Joseph Cly, a 92-year-old retired coal miner with black lung. Jesus, and he's 92. Yeah. Went to a hospital in none other than Scranton, Pennsylvania. Yeah. <laughs> no, don't want to get sued. <laughs> because he was having problems swallowing. While he was in the hospital, he made funeral arrangements and living arrangements with Walter and Helen Pastanikas, who owned a local funeral home. At the end of the four-week stay in the hospital in 1982, instead of returning home, he went to live with the Pestanikas in their rooming house, which is called the Stagecoach Inn. Even though in the agreement they were supposed, he was supposed to live with the couple in their home. That's even more strange to me. I yeah, this whole thing is strange. The, the arrangement is just fucking weird. Yeah. yeah. Um. He paid the couple $3,000 or $3,300 a month and the arrangement was made that the couple would care for Cly. Right after Cly was discharged, 
discharged from the hospital, the couple took Clyde to the bank so he could add their names to his account. This would allow them to withdraw money from his account on his behalf without requiring a signature from him or like for him to be present yeah, every yeah, time yeah. they'd have to do that. Arrangements were also made for a visiting nurse to come to the couple's home to administer vitamin B12 supplements to Cly. The couple agreed orally to follow the medical instructions and to supply Cly with food, shelter, care, and the medicine which he required. So, like, there was also prescriptions that needed yeah, to be like filled. Yeah, these at whatever time and blah, blah, blah. So they had to go get those prescriptions for him, pick them up, and minister to Cly. Yeah. The Pestanicas, the Pestanicases, <laughs> <laughs> who were both in their 60s, put Cly up in a converted patio area of a defunct bar they owned in rural Scranton. So... That's what the stagecoach in was. An old bar that they now use as a rural house. Yeah. Or as a rooming mm-hmm. house. Two and a half years later, on November 15th, 1984, Cly was found dead in that. Two and a half years. Yeah. He came to live with him in 82. And now it's 1984. Um, the authorities were called and Cly's body was taken to the medical examiner. The authorities also noted um, that where Cly had lived for two and a half years, like the room that he had been uh, living in, was unfit for human habitation, according to them. Okay. There was no refrigeration. There was no sink, no insulation. Human waste was also scattered around the small room he was staying in. Jesus. The walls contained cracks which exposed the room to outside weather conditions. I mean, it's fucking Pennsylvania. Yeah. In November is when they found him, so it's fucking cold. While he was living at the inn, the couple told Cly's family that they did not know where Cly was. This was an effort to conceal his whereabouts. So everyone just assumed in the beginning that he was staying with the couple's house and then he just fucked off when really he was staying at this I the guess bar, yeah. this yeah old converted bar right this lame ass place yeah yeah <laughs> Cly's body was taken to the medical examiner and the ME concluded that Cly had been starved to death and had suffered severe dehydration he also hadn't eaten in the days leading up to his death at the time of his death he only weighed 53 pounds. Jesus Christ. His ribs and sternum were pronounced. The autopsy showed that Clyde was dead approximately 39 hours before his body was found. Police did some digging and found that his prescriptions were never filled. The visiting nurse was told by the couple that Clyde did not want the vitamin supplement shots and that her services, therefore, were not required. Since Clyde... Play, uh, Cly paid the Pestanicuses. The M.E. had to give them Cly's body, give Cly's body to the couple so that they could bury him to add insult to injury. Yeah, what the fuck? Because he paid them up front already for the funeral. Yeah, yeah, this was a written contract. Like. Mm-hmm. The police said the family had the final decision on what to do with the body. Cly didn't have many relatives, and the few he did couldn't afford a funeral for him elsewhere. 
So they also agreed that the body should be sent back to the Pestinicuses. That's awful. Six days after Cly was reported dead, the police went back to the room where Cly had been staying and found that the couple had cleaned and painted it. There had also been a walker that had not been in there before. Oh, like this is to yeah. stage it to, oh, for fuck's sake. The Pestinicuses were arrested and they were accused of holding Cly captive as they stole his money and starved him to death. Cly had given the couple access to his accounts, which had $35,000 in it when he moved in. When he died, there was only $55 in the account. My God. The couple used the money to finance their political ambitions. The Pestinicuses' defense was that Cly was old, anorexic, he suffered from black lung, and he suffered... And he had several other medical conditions that could have contributed to his death. They said that they did the best that they could for him, and he died of natural causes. They also accused the M.E. of botching the autopsy. To refute refute their claim, Clyde's body was exhumed in February, and another autopsy was done. The M.E. found two types of stitching on the stomach. Now, the reason why that's weird is because when they did the initial autopsy, after an initial autopsy, there for him, there should have only been one set of stitches, the one that ME made. Yeah, yeah. When they exhumed the body, there was two. So, remember the time of events. The ME did the autopsy and had to pass the body over yeah. To the Pestinicuses. And then it was buried. When they exhumed, the second pair of stitches was yeah, found. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It. Cool. This indicated that he was opened after the initial autopsy, which there is no need for. Yeah. When the Emmy looked inside, he found the stomach. He's found that the stomach and the other organs were replaced with ones from someone who had eaten before their death. Oh, my God. Isn't that insane? <laughs> that top fucking hell. Yeah. These people are fucking ruthless. Psychos, yeah. Yeah. That's politics, folks. <laughs> the Pestinicuses denied swapping organs, so it's never found out where these organs came from. More than likely from another body they buried. The Pestinicuses were found guilty. In February of 87, of third-degree murder and other charges. Third-degree murder, which I think is fucking stupid. Yeah. At the trial, two GOP officials testified that Helen Pestinicus asked them to intercede with Attorney General Leroy Zimmerman to halt the probe into Clyde's death. Testimony in the homicide trial, the longest in Lackawanna County, History began November 24th, 21st, November 24th, after three weeks of jury selection. Both were given five to ten years in jail. Walter was acquitted of separate charges. Oh, like while the, like before, like while this was going on, one of the charges that they wanted to stick to the husband was um, charges of intimidation of witnesses. <laughs> um But they were cleared of that, and they were also cleared of charges of conspiracy to murder. Which, again, I think is bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck. Well, that got dark real quick. Yeah. 
Poor old man. But you know what? What? He was what, like 92? Yeah. He had black lung. Uh-huh. And needed all this medication and B12 and a whole lot. He still survived two and a half years. That was one tough old bastard. I wonder if they hadn't initially... No, because then they wouldn't have shoot off the nurse. Maybe like the whole plan was to slowly Yeah, they probably thought it would look like an accident, but they were just fucking idiots. Yeah. But like, can you imagine if he had been taken care of properly? Probably still be alive. Yeah. 120 something. Yeah. Well, who knows? I mean, because... Yeah, I don't, I don't That's my know. theory, and I'm sticking to it. All right. And the last story of this segment of sketchy morticians. <laughs> <laughs> this is the tri-state cremator- crematory, crematory? crematorium scandal. In 1996, Tommy Ray Brent Marsh left college to go home because his father was getting ill and could not run the family business, which was a crematorium that Marsh Sr., had built in the backyard of the family home in Noble, Georgia. Tommy Sr. had founded the crematorium in the mid-1970s and provided cremation services for a number of funeral homes in Georgia, Alabama, and Tennessee. He ran for coroner of Walker County, but lost by fewer than 100 votes. He had other businesses on the side, like tent rentals and vault constructions. While Marsh Jr. was running the tri-state crematory? Crematorium. Yeah, crematorium. Thousands of bodies were sent to him to be cremated. In October 2000, the sheriff's department got their first report that something unusual may be happening at the crematorium. A gas man notified them to say that he saw bodies lying around the Marsh property. But the sheriff's department never followed up on the tip. Thirteen months later, the Environmental Protection Agency was giving an, was given an, an, was given an anonymous tip that there bo- that there were bodies in the woods around the Marsh's property. Again, they claimed to have done an investigation, but they found nothing. Which, considering the findings. That's that's obviously a huge lie. On February 14th, 2002, the body received a call from an anonymous source that while walking their dog in the woods, they found a human arm bone. The next day, the police finally went to the crematorium and found 49 bodies that were supposed to be cremated, but were not. They widened their search of the property and found 334 bodies scattered on and around the Marsh property. Some of the bodies had been dead for five years. Fuck. Some of the bodies were still in caskets and stacked on top of each other. Wait, but not buried? No. So where? Just out. Like out in the open. <laughs> Isn't that insane? Like just outside. What the fuck? Yeah. Many of the bodies were not in that were not in caskets were just strewn about. 
Some of these bodies had hospital gowns and hospital wristbands still on them. They, li- they just threw They're the bodies out? Just out like... In like, the back garden? Like my back garden, I just threw a, back, a dead body back there. Now it's just sitting there. Like that. Why? Well. Okay. okay. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> bodies were found throughout the woods. In different buildings, because they had different buildings on the property. It was like a business thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, like a homemade business yeah. thing. Don't go in there. That's the body shed. I mean. <laughs> I keep my lawnmower there. Yeah. Bodies were found throughout the woods in different buildings on the property. And some were dumped in holes in the ground. Like just open holes. Because someone, some of the bodies had been dead for about five years, there were several levels of decomposition. For example, in the garage, police found coffins with bodies in them stacked on top of each other and even more bodies just lying around with their fluids leaking onto the ground. Marsh's lawyer said, Marsh, you know, the the, the junior, Marsh Jr., yeah. suffered from mercury poisoning from the cremation process and it was like he was living in a fog. The police, though, believed that he had just gotten behind on his work and never wanted to do it in the first place, so he just didn't cremate anyone. Marsh was hit with 787 felony charges, 179 counts of abusing a corpse, and 439 counts of theft. Marsh pleaded guilty, and he was sentenced to 12 years in prison in February of 2004. With eligibility for parole. 12 years isn't a very long time for all that. No. With time off for good behavior and time served, he could spend fewer than four years in prison. Fuck's sake. It also cost the county and the state $10 million for the cleanup and recovery of the bodies. 133 of these bodies could not be identified. I I don't know. That's fucking insane. That is batshit. Yeah. Other family members expected a longer prison or a longer sentence. Yeah. Of course. The indictment against Mr. Marsh cited um, all those felony counts. Um, and they all had like possible sentences of thousands of years in prisons, like in summation. Mm-hmm. Mr. Marsh's lawyer, McCracken Poston, that's his name, <laughs> said then that it was a bit of. It was a bit of overkill in a case where none of the allegations had anything to do with a living being. This reminds me of kind of like in Bob's Burgers in the first episode. He was like, oh, we care more about the dead bodies than we do the, the, the living these bodies. bodies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what this reminds me of. I watch a lot of Bob's Burgers. In Civil Suits... Uh, 1,600 family members received $36 million from funeral homes who sent businesses to Tri-State. The families settled with the Marshes for $80 million to be paid by the Marshes Home Insurance Company, which is fighting that settlement. And that's my segment of morgues and morticians. Well, I feel great after that. <laughs> bodies everywhere yeah that is fucking insane yeah crazy shit right well do you know what time it is now listen to stories 
That's my impersonation of you. Oh, okay. Good. <laughs> so this is from Reddit user Bernd Schmidt. And it's called, Why Are There No Running Lights? A True Tinder Horror Story. Oh. After my last relationship ended, I began to engage in a lot of irresponsible behavior. One of them going on Tinder to find someone to just have sex with. Unconscionably irresponsible to my own detriment, I was disregarding using condoms, <gasps> sleeping with a girl who had HPV. Oof. And meeting up with a few other shady partners for a one night stand. I'm sure much of this had to do with mild depression. After maybe a little over a dozen hookups, I'd met a gorgeous girl in her 20s. Down to, well, you know. She gave me her address and we agreed to meet up that same night. I knew her neighbourhood. What you would consider a bit unsavoury, made up of mostly Section 8 duplexes, so I was, of course, on guard. This town has the second highest murder rate in the city. I followed the GPS, which led me to a house without any lights on, inside or outside. The house was directly across the street from, a, from the bad neighbourhood. I'm a white boy in a mostly black neighbourhood, something by now I was used to since I'd mostly been on a streak of hooking up with black females. I made a few laps before calling her. It rang once or twice each time, but she abruptly hung up. However, I did get a text, but called the girl Jasmine. The exchange went as follows, verbatim as I'm going back and forth from my actual text messages here. Jasmine, hey, where you at? Me, I think I'm here. You live in a house or a duplex? Five minutes go by without a reply and then they started again. Jasmine, where you at? Me, I think I'm on your street. 514 blah 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 drive, right? All I see is a house on the corner. Two and a half minutes passed. Jasmine, I ain't gonna stand out here all night, bruh. I hate that word. Me, I've been asking you if you live in that house. Me, the house on the corner. Three minutes pass. Jasmine, bruh. Where you at? Jasmine, yes, red house on the corner. At this point, I pull over and decide to stake out the house. I tell her my car was white. It was actually dark blue. Me. Okay, I know where you are. I gotta turn around and come back. Be there in 30 seconds. As I'm watching, I see a girl come out of the house, all lights still off, onto the porch, phone light illuminating her face. I couldn't get a great look, but she did resemble the girl in, the, in her profile pics. Next, I watch from the house across the street. Two tall males exit and run to her house, both wearing dark hoodies, hoods up, and they both enter. But not before I see a third, really big, older male open the door for them. Jasmine. Bro, you coming or what? Me. About to pull up now. Come outside. Jasmine. Alright, outside. I take my gun from my glove box and instead of just leaving I did something potentially very dangerous. I turn on my headlights and pull alongside the house and roll down my window. She's on the steps, leering down into her phone before I call out, Jasmine? She looks at me and then says, Hey, I thought you were driving a white car. Am I good to come in? I ask. Yeah, you're good. Why are you asking so many questions? I smiled and said one thing. Nice try. In that moment, just as I was pulling away, she flashed me a grin. Not a friendly or flirtatious grin, but one which obviously said, you're very lucky. 
About one minute later, I get a text. Jasmine, why you punk out? Me, I didn't. I saw your three friends go in there. Jasmine, they're my cousins. You a bitch. Me, no they ain't. (laughs) The entire house was pitch dark. I'm not stupid. Then I got one more text, affirming my worst suspicions. A brief, albeit frightening one. Jasmine, ha ha. So, is that the end of the story? No. Oh, okay. She blocked me after that. I'd like to say it was my last time using Tinder. However, from then on, I'd only meet up with people in public places. I'm currently in a relationship with someone I did not meet online. Just be careful out there. The end. That's the end. I like that story. It's so... It's different than the ones... It's it's relevant and it's different than the ones you normally tell. Yeah, Um, no, I get it. It's different because it's scary... In a real, like in a very... In a Stephen King kind of way. Yeah, yeah, I guess. You see what I'm saying? Okay, creeps. Happy second week of January. Yeah, who fucking cares? (laughs) (laughs) Happy whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Handles are the same everywhere. Weekly Creep. Uh, Email us your stories at weeklycreep weeklycreep at gmail.com I think that's it. Yeah. We'll catch you losers later. Yeah. Bye. Bye.